This morning's scripture reading comes from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Please follow along in your own Bibles or as the text is presented on the screens above. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. In the beginning, Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was not in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, but nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace, and plenty of grace, in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So somebody said that uh, the, the central message of the Bible, which we call the gospel, is uh, shallow enough for a child to wade in, so it's understandable to a child. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Very simple. But it's also deep enough for an elephant to drown in. And um, right now you're going to be more in the category of an elephant. <laughs> If you hear those words, those were very deep words. This is one of those deep sections, of deepest sections of Scripture. And um, so get ready to get wet, you elephants, and uh, hopefully we won't drown. But um, let, me, let me give you a little rundown of the four gospel writers and how this sort of works out. So Mark, the gospel writer, was probably the first one to write things down in roughly 60 A.D., 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And Mark anchors his story in 800 years earlier in the prophet Isaiah who said that somebody would be coming and this person would be from God and you can read that in Mark's gospel as he begins it. And then the next gospel writer is Matthew and writing roughly in the, a little after Mark and Matthew was a Jewish person writing to a Jewish audience and he wants his audience to know that Jesus is very Jewish and so he anchors it in the story of Abraham. He begins with Abraham 2,000 years before Jesus. So 800 in Isaiah then 2,000 in uh, Abraham, the father of the Jewish uh, nation. And then uh, Luke, who is a Gentile or non-Jew, and uh, he wants to make sure that everybody understands that God's love is for them. And so he goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. That's where he begins in his genealogy. And uh, then we have John. John is writing 25 years or so after 
those three writers. And he is old, much older, and he has thought a lot about it, and he doesn't want to be redundant. And so he actually goes back before time. And we have no, you know, we don't have any way to account for that. Do you see why we're in over our heads here? We're, yeah, there's no way to put it on the calendar. Uh, and at any rate, it's, it's, so it's very deep and very expansive. And uh, he's going to use uh, some poetry to get his point across. But what it does is it goes way back, but it also comes way forward to us 2,000 years later from when John wrote it. And it comes to us in ways that um, it does something to our heart to hear those words that were read. And they sort of seek us out. Uh, they kind of maybe haunt us a bit. Uh, and ho- hopefully they find us. And that's John's intent as he's writing these words, that, that you would find or Christ would find you uh, through these words. So in this Christmas season, we're going to be, in this Advent season, focusing in on what's called the prologue of John, which is really just those 18 verses that were read. We'll take them in four chunks, and uh, that is plenty for us to uh, bite off in this season. And I want to give you, uh, our, this is our outline, and uh, I'm going to be a little shorter than I, because of our, we have all the kids in here, and I know that I don't, I don't want to go too long. How's that? You all for that? Don't say yes, but yeah, I won't take it personally if you do. Uh, So in 20 minutes, we're going to try to get through these really deep first five verses together. And we're going to focus in on those words up there, with and was, which has to do with the character of uh, of Jesus Christ, and then the life and light, which is about his his characteristics. And then we'll have an opportunity for communion together. So there's the, the roadmap. And he, he begins with the words, in the beginning. And you don't have to be a, a Bible scholar to know that that has a familiar sound to it. In the beginning. Where, where, does, where have we heard that before? Genesis chapter 1. That's how the Bible starts. And John wants, John is, he's a, a Jewish person. And the Old Testament, that's, that was written for the Jewish people and then ultimately for us. But it, it, it is those words. And he wants us to to hear the echoes there of Genesis chapter 1. And he's going to use poetry. Just as Genesis chapter 1 has a poetic rhythm to it, and, uh, and God said, let there be light, and then he, every day there's a, and God said, let there be something, and it, there's a, it, it, it's written as poetry. And uh, so John is going to use some poetry here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. It, has, it just sounds like poetry. Now, some of you say poetry. That, that's just whatever. That's light, fluffy stuff that you send to your wife on Valentine's Day. I'm going to try to make a case for poetry here. That some people have said this, that, or somebody said this, that if you want to communicate facts, you use prose. If you want to communicate great truth, you use poetry. And let me try to explain that by a very human uh, experience. So I mentioned Valentine's Day. Let's say that I want to say on, to my wife, um, she has many wonderful features, but I want to focus in. It's Valentine's Day, so I say, honey, you have the loveliest lips. And I say, using prose, I say, you know, they're so moist, and your saliva glands are working really well, and your endocrine system is just top-notch. And I write that on my Valentine's Day card, and I give it to her, and what does she do? Not so much, right? Don't do this, Alex. It won't work. This is not a good example. So, but to communicate great truth, 
and what, what we're really trying to get at is uh, I would say something like, your lips are so sweet and so moist, it reminds me of the morning dew on a cluster of grapes as the sun rises. Ah, oh, I can hear the women. Yeah, guys, this is the right words right here. Write it down. But you use poetry to communicate its great truth. And, uh, okay, that is just bringing the illustration down to earth. Um, so John does that. Now, let's be detectives for a moment. He uses the, the in the beginning was the word, and the, word, the Greek word there is logos, which means... For the Hebrew mind, at least, it means the speech of God. So think that it can get translated that way. And the reason they would say that is because when they go back to Hebrew or to Genesis chapter one, they realize that God's speech was effective and powerful. So when we talk, sometimes we talk, and nothing happens. <laughs> nothing, you know. If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. But or a teacher, but nothing happened. It's not effective speech. But when God spoke, He spoke creation into existence. Let there be light and whew, light. I mean, you have to think this way about God and how He works and His speech. So uh, that's what we're talking about. There is that whatever this is, whatever this word is, it's powerful and effective. And then he uses the pronoun he. He was in the beginning, or he was with God in the beginning. And so we know it's not just an it, it's a person. And this he, we ask, who is it? And John does something with us here, because he's kind of a poet. He teases us a bit, and he holds out the name of Jesus Christ until the verse 17. We're going to have to get all the way through there, and you scam ahead, and you think, okay, verse 6, there's John the Baptist. Nope, not him. And then you get to verse 17, and it finally says Moses, and you say, no, that's not Moses. And then you see the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus is his name. Christ is his title. And then in verse 18, he's, he gets the additional title of Son of God, which is amazing, and we'll try to flesh that out here in a bit. So those things are important to know. And then we get to wrestle with that question of with and was. How can you be with someone and, and you are that? I mean, with and was. You, he was with God and he was God. And it's a great mystery, but this is where we can't go any further without talking about the Trinity. So some people will say, I can't understand the Trinity, therefore it's not important. Um, there's a lot of things that I can't understand that are really important in my life, like electricity and things. I'm just not, I'm not real good on that kind of stuff. But they're important. The Trinity is, I'm going to try to make a case that it's really important at a very uh, earthly level for us to grasp the Trinity. So, uh, let me begin with some prose. And this is sort of straightforward. The early church wrestled with the, the idea or the concept of the Trinity for about 200 years. Really, really smart people wrestled with this. And this is basically what they came up with in kind of a geometric scheme. So it, you've seen maybe the, it's the idea of a triangle with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are all God, but the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy... You know, it, each one has their distinct personality. So you can, it's easy to see how... I think it's easy for us to see how Jesus was with God, if we can uh, accept that by faith, but was God. This is where uh, you, you have to 
take some extra steps. And this, this is helpful, but I want to I go beyond uh, prose to poetry. And um, this is a, another way of looking at it. The Greek, uh, the, the people who were thinking about this were Greeks. They were uh, roughly in the uh, third and fourth centuries. And they had a word, perichoresis, which has to do with dancing. And that, that there was a, 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 what they called a dance of love that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit have been doing from time before time began. And that's what John is picking up on here, that we're seeing a glimpse. And John is really big on exposing the Trinity to us throughout his gospel. But he, we might want to begin here with this attempt by, some, by an artist to capture the idea of movement in a circle. Um, so here's the, here's the point. This is why it's important for us, is at the very center of creation is a relationship. And out of that relationship we came as human beings and we are drawn to or we try to resist but but here here's something i can say to all of us is that we know if we're not in a love relationship as a human being i don't care who you are what your faith is if you if you're not in a love relationship you are not in a good place you are just not and every every human being knows this that if you're going to be... In fact, we could say that the more relationally uh, connected and in a loving, good way you are, the more human you are. Now, Tim Keller, who's thought about this stuff a bit more than most and has written on it, I'll just, he'll put this into a few words. Each of the divine persons, that is the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, centers upon the others. Now, it's hard for us because we don't always see people that same way. Uh, you, you are not always the same way. You don't always think about others. Most of us are thinking about ourselves most of the time. None demands, in, in, the God, in, in God, none of the three demand that the others revolve around him. Each voluntarily, cir- voluntarily circles the other to pouring love, delight, and adoration into them. Each person of the Trinity loves, adores, defers to, and rejoices in others. That creates a dynamic, a pulsating dance of joy and love. Now, I think there's something in that that it should awaken something in your heart in terms of a desire that you would want. Uh, and once again, I said, we do want it. Every human being wants a taste of that, at least. And we do get tastes of that, and we are thankful for that. Hopefully that in, you know, three minutes or whatever it was there, I could explain <laughs> the impossible, which is the Trinity. All right, so let's go on to light and life. And um, these two concepts, we'll start with life, and he does that in, in verse three. Through him, that is this person that he's going to name later as Jesus Christ, through him all things were made. He says it positively and then he says it negatively that there was nothing that is that wasn't made by him. So he wants to be very clear as he goes through this that everything came through Jesus Christ. So we see Jesus as this man in history 2,000 years ago and John lifts him out of that and says, oh, but he's so much more. He goes back into eternity and everything in creation was made through him. Quite a claim. <laughs> and we think of life. I'm gonna, there's three, actually, three, three words for life in the Bible. Uh, that come out of the Greek language, and we're not going to touch on the, the one, but I'm going to give you these two. One uh, is referred to here would be biological life, and the Greek word would be bios, right? 
bios, biological, we get that word. The second one, which is where John goes in in verse 4, is that there's another kind of life. And again, I think every one of us knows this, unless we're a strict materialist uh, in our lives, meaning that we we believe there's actually nothing out there beyond what we can see. And um, most people, I I don't think, they have a hard time owning up to that, uh, deep down at least. They're haunted by the thought that there must be more to this life. And I think they kind of want it. So um, if we get into verse 4, he uses the word life here. In him was life, and that life was the light of all people. And the word for life here is the word zoe. And if we have any zoes here today, you have been well named. It's such a beautiful name. And that little Greek word, zoe, means life, but it means a particular quality. So we have biological life, which we can all identify through science, and then something above that that's called Zoe life. And Zoe life is not created. We can say that. The reason we can say it's not created is because it is the life of God himself. It is eternal life. It is life everlasting. It is, uh, uh, Jesus talks about abundant life. He's using that word, it's one of John's favorite words. He uses it 36 times in his gospel. Zoe life. Now, the Greeks, who were, John was writing to whoever, uh, they would be part of it, the non-Jews, they had it in their mind, uh, if you, they like to think abstractly, and Plato was one of those who did that and others, but they want, they realized, I think, intuited in their hearts that there's more to life than what you see, and they wanted that, and so they identified the categories of life as uh, truth, uh, beauty, and goodness. And those are, aren't those three, those are great things, truth, beauty, and goodness. So John is appealing to them, saying basically, in your hunger for truth, beauty, and goodness, I have a person for you. Not a concept, not a classroom abstract, but a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And don't you want that? That's basically what he's saying. In him was life. In him, in Jesus, was life. And then he goes to light. This is our, our last word. And uh, he says that in this, in, in verse 4, in that life was the light of all people. And in verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, so there's a glow to this life. And uh, yet the darkness has not either understood it or overcome it. It could be either of those translations, and we won't get into all the fine points there. But again, you find the echoes, real quickly, echoes of chapter 1 of Genesis. When uh, we we start Genesis chapter 1, we find that there's darkness and there's chaos. The the Hebrew word is tohu wabohu, which is always kind of a fun word to say, but it's just kind of nothing. And darkness is part of that. So the point here is that darkness is not created by God. That's, that would be the biblical concept. Yet it exists. And that God is over the darkness. He rules the darkness, which is really, really important for us at our level of life to realize because we all experience darkness. Not just out, outer darkness, but inside ourselves. It, it, we all know what darkness feels like on the inside. It can be some of the anxiety stuff that we talked about last week, the things that happen on our journey through life 
that produce uh, the sense of, of darkness in our souls. And I, I really, I'm around people enough to believe that we all live with this most of the time. Uh, there's a few days when, when the joy just seems to take over and there's not a whole lot more to talk about. But for most of us, we have these, these, this darkness of soul that is, is like something always at our heels, uh, wanting to drag us down. And in the Bible, you need to know this too about darkness. It is always, there's, there's lots of metaphors in the Bible. The, the Bible is full of rich metaphors, and that's where poetry is very much a language of the Bible. But darkness is never unlike many of the other metaphors, it's never considered a good thing. It's always a negative. And we live with it. So the, the key is to walk towards light. Now, I'm going to close with this little story. Maybe this will help. Uh, but I was in Palm Springs this week where, if you think of Palm Springs, you think of darkness or light. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I tell you. I, mean, I, was, I could show you on my weather app right now. They have, there's a thing on their weather app there that's actually yellowish, you know? <laughs> And um, so I was there with my mother-in-law, and she's 88 years old. And it's hard to be 88 years old, and I, I think we have to go out of our way to value people who are, it's tough. And we need, we need all the ages to make life happen for us. And uh, so I was helping her navigate being 88, if I can put it that way, and I won't go into all the details. And, but... I, I went out on an errand, I think it was uh, maybe Thursday or, Friday, or Wednesday this week, and it was in the afternoon, and I was gone for about an hour and a half, and in that hour and a half, she experienced darkness, and let me tell you how it happened. She got a phone call, actually a couple of phone calls, but the second one was the one that got her, and it was somebody on the other end who was trying to take advantage of her financially, and this is what happens a lot to older people. Uh, and, you know, she's wise to it, and she knows what you... But, but she kind of got taken in a bit, and she felt the, that sort of shudder of evil feeling that you get. And uh, she hung up, and she immediately locked all the doors. She lives in a gated community, I'm telling you. This is, you know, I mean, it's, so it's, she's protected in that way, but locked, double-locked all the doors and uh, closed all the shades on the windows and turned off all the lights. And this is, at, this is on a sunny day in Southern California. So I get home, and I knock on the door, I ring the doorbell, and she doesn't come to the door. She's scared. And eventually I convinced her that I was me, and uh, I was safe. And she let me in, and as I walked in, I had this feeling, uh, I didn't know what had happened, and she explained it to me, and she says, I'm afraid, and I'm nervous, and I you know, gave her a little hug, and I said, well, let's, I'll tell you what, I just don't, this isn't good. You've experienced darkness in a way, and you've retreated into darkness. Let's get the light in here. Let's open the doors, let the sun in, open the windows, and you could see, as we did that, you could see the light returning to her soul. So it was this outer darkness to inner, inner darkness, outer light to inner light. Only to illustrate, here's my point, if I can make a point out of this, is that God loves to come into dark places. There's a long history of that in the scriptures. And it takes, us, it takes faith to believe that. And so whatever darkness we bring with us today, I just ask for an openness here, an openness to the God who is life, and he is light. The invitation to come to the communion table is, is there for all of us, and that's where we're going to come right now. And Think of it in terms of life, that there's life 
available at this table for you. It's been set for you. And it is that life, the eternal central life of God in all creation, he's there. He, he love, there's love within God himself that he wants to share with you at this table. And then there's light available as well. So we remember that Jesus, we, we talk about the crucifixion, and it happened on a Friday. And at noon that day, he ended up dying at three. But from noon to three that day, Matthew told us that, told us that darkness came over the whole earth. Jesus Christ knows what darkness feels like. And he wants to be with you as your light. Because that darkness is just temporary. You've got to believe that. It's just temporary. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for these words this morning from the Gospel of John. And uh, we lift our hearts to you and pray. We pray for your light to come into the dark places. We pray for your life to come into our life. We have the mess there. We have darkness there. We have the uh, things there that aren't clean. We need scrubbing. We need your light. We need, we need you, Lord. And so just confessing that. I pray that we can, each one of us, turn that into a prayer as we hear your invitation to come to this table now. In Christ's name, amen.